I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. Sitting in with Leanne and I today is one of our executive producers, Kim Garner. So let's begin. Nigel Sinclair started out as an attorney in Scotland, but moved to the U.S. and became one of America's most prolific film producers. He's made such films as George Clooney's The Ides of March, Ron Howard's epic action thriller Rush, and Sliding Doors starring Gwyneth Paltrow and Terminator 3, The Rise of the Machines, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's produced and won awards for some of the greatest music documentaries ever made. They include George Harrison's Living in the Material World, Bob Dylan's No Direction Home, Foo Fighters' Back and Forth, Amazing Journey, The Story of the Who, Billy Joel's Last Play at Shea, and The Beatles' Eight Days a Week. He's currently working on a few new projects, one of them with opera singer Luciano Pavarotti, an epic life story documentary. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Nigel Sinclair. I'd like to start at the beginning of my experiences with you, which was when you were an entertainment lawyer and then became a partner with Mel and so forth. So do you mind talking a little bit about your background there? Sure. Um, I moved to Los Angeles in in 1927, actually 1980, and practiced law for, as it turned out, about 15 years. In the middle of that, I became an entertainment lawyer, gradually. I was an English-British-born lawyer who took the California bar and set up a business for a London firm here and eventually left the London firm, as people do in California, through the in the Boston Harbor and started my own firm <laughs> and became an expert in actually in the international side of the film business, which when I first started doing it was because the only thing I knew. So I, I built a law practice up with a client of mine called Guy East, who was a, a sales agent, who was a very interesting person because he started his own sales agency, which is a company that sells films, rights in films at film markets to individual countries around the world who pay money to anticipate they're going to get a great film starring Kevin Costner, whoever it might be. And Guy had a lucky run where he, he put some money into Dances with Wolves when it was oh, a, a challenging prospect mm-hmm. and turned out to be right, and it was fantastically successful. He was thanked at the Oscars. And then the next year, he backed another not obviously successful film called Driving Miss Daisy. And so for the second year in a row, he was actually thanked at the Academy Awards for wow. Best Director and Best Picture, which people were saying, who is this guy? And I was his lawyer. So he and I started breaking into the American marketplace with another agent at CIA called John Patak. And for about three or four years, we were the experts at packaging films with foreign money. And from agents, suddenly went from agents in Hollywood, talent agents, went from wondering what an earth farm was about to thinking, hey, this is a new way to get a lot of money for my client. And we started putting films together. So the production would start in the United States, but you would get foreign money to help make the film and then have those rights overseas as well? Like putting... Yeah, essentially, yes. Yeah. That's the short answer. The long answer yeah. is, is that you would put together your director and your cast and your actors and you would go to a bank to give you the money, and the bank would want you to give you, just like a construction contract in the construction trade, that, that would want you to bring lots of um, contracts, which they would discount. So you would go to a market, you'd sell France, you'd sell Spain, you'd sell Germany, I've got Kevin Costner directing, I've got Kevin Costner and uh, Clint Eastwood acting, and the movie's going to cost $45 million, and I want you to give me $4 million for France. 
they give you a contract, you go and discount it at City National Bank and they'll give you perhaps three and a half against that contract. You add it all up and you make the film and when you deliver it, everybody pays, hopefully. And that that's a business. And it was a brand new business in Hollywood. I was going to say you were at the forefront of all of that. Yeah, and I, I was particularly good at the sort of engineering side of pulling all those bits together. And there's about 20 of us in the community that did that. Some acted for banks, I acted for the producers um, and Guy was the sales agent and together we built a business up which I then started my own firm and although despite the flattering introduction I was only one of many great entertainment lawyers I was the expert in Hollywood on international financing and and through to 1995 I uh, built an enormous practice and I acquired some great clients I was privileged to represent Mel Gibson at a peak in his career and, and became very close to him and his manager, Bruce Davey, and worked on all the films from Lethal Weapon 1, Lethal Weapon 2, through to when I retired from being a lawyer in 96. I had uh, Peter Weir, the great director Peter Weir, and actually uh, worked on The Truman Show, for example, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I put together the whole structure for a movie called Green Card with Gerard Depardieu. Mm-hmm. I, got, I remember, that. I remember that. I acted for Gerard Depardieu. I represented Anthony Hopkins, Gary Oldman. I had a lot of great international actors. It was still very internationally sort of structured and then I got Ridley Scott as a client worked on one of his films 1492 and that led me to become his lawyer and part of his core advisory team and Tony Scott the late wonderful Tony Scott was my client so I had an interesting practice there and Guy was working on many of them and about 1995 I I went to London sitting in what was then called the Mayfair Hotel and Guy East my client called me up said I need to see you and Guy's not the sort of person that normally takes initiative in relationships. You just like that. <laughs> so, you know, we hang out, we do things. So I thought, oh, my goodness, one of my lawyers has committed malpractice or something. You know, there's a problem. So we're sitting in this room. and remember it like it was yesterday. And we're sitting chatting and I get some tea and I think, where's this going? He says, you know, my contract with RCS, who had bought his business Majestic for what for us as young people was an untold amount of money at the time that, that mostly he got, is running out at Christmas time. So I said, well, well, I know that guy. So he's sitting, staring at me, you know, looking at me, and I'm thinking, you know, when, when is the axe going to fall? And I, so I said, yeah, I know your contract runs out, Guy. If you recall, I actually negotiated it. So what, what are you going to do? Because he'd sold his business, he had an earn-in, and he had a, a contract that was expiring in 1995. He said, well, I'm either going to play golf in rock for the rest of my life, or I'm going to go into business with you. You know, and I was sitting there sort of daydreaming like you guys are watching me now. I was thinking, me. And I looked over my shoulder to see if there was somebody there. <laughs> Who are you talking to? And I, I, I said, me. He yeah, said, I mean, yeah, me. Me, yes, you. I said, golly, that's uh, wonderful. You, you want to join my law practice? And because I then had two businesses, I had a consulting business, which had, did some industry deals. I wanted to keep it away from the law practice. We'd sold George Harrison's library. I'd bought Shepherd and Studios with Ridley Scott and had a small piece of it, put it together, becoming an entrepreneur. He said, no, 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 you can't do that. You've got to come and join me. And I said, well, but, but, but Guy, I, I have a law practice. I have 15 lawyers working for me and I have another business. I, I... He said, yeah, yeah, but that's not a real business. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, you don't own anything. Big hat, no cattle, which is a Texas expression. Yeah, yeah. So I said, do you know who I am? I was quite offended. I said, I came to America in 1980 with nothing. I'm one of the biggest entertainment lawyers in the world. And my clients are, I said, you know my clients. He said, yeah, 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 but you can't have... Mel Gibson's manager, whose name you mentioned, calling you on Christmas Day for the rest of your life, because these people are very demanding, and, and rightly so. They manage very important people. She said, you need to leave and form a business with me. How old are you? I said, well, I'm 48. He said, well, if you don't do it by the time you're 50, you won't have the courage. At which point I was starting to think, you know, words that begin with F that I can't say on the radio. <laughs> and, um, and he said, you, you, you know, the first time you do a deal, 
and it's not for Bruce Davy and Mel Gibson because I just put Braveheart together and I was very proud of that. I was the engineer of that and of course Mel oh, Gibson and Bruce a, Davy. They, but Guy pointed out, you know, they had the courage, Nigel. You risked your time but they risked their money and their lives and now you need to go and do that too like Bruce did who's a really good friend of mine, Mel's manager. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I thought, well, thank you, Guy. I'm very flattered and thought and proceeded like a typical lawyer to think of my next task. Let's finish our ne- tea. <laughs> next client, well, next client to deal with. Went, got home. Didn't think much more of it. And I was lying in the bath at home, chatting, as I do with my wife, was sitting with an enormous big kind of tub thing. And I said, you know, the funniest conversation with Guy in London, he said he, he wanted me to leave my practice and go and work for him. She said, I think that that sounds like a great idea. And I said, <laughs> what? She said, well, you can't go on like this for your rest of your life. I said, you've been talking to him, haven't you? And she said, no. So I did. Wow. I left my practice. Guy promised me he had these great scripts that were all going to be, it was one called John Lennon's Hair, which I thought was a bit dodgy. <laughs> this is going to be a big hit. So I gave up my million dollars a year, turned all my clients over to my partners. A million dollars a year in the 80s, which is a oh, lot of money. Yeah. yeah, I was making like seven fifty, a hundred thousand. I mean, I was a big lawyer. You know, yeah. I was making a lot of money. And you had a lot of people working and a for lot, you. And I had a lot of clients. And one of the things I knew, because there's a lot of present for this in Los Angeles in the talent business, is when you're a lawyer and you leave your clients behind, they wish you well, but you can never go back because you've left them. It's like breaking up. So people do did try to go back and it never worked. So I knew that if I did this, there's no going back. Mm-hmm. Here I'm in California. I have a mortgage. I don't have a lot of savings. Guy made some vague promise that if things didn't work out, he'd pay my mortgage off. We started this company. We decided after much back and forth to, to call it Intermedia because I, I, the, my little consulting business was called Intermedia. And, and we decided that we would just create the continuity. We, we tried all sorts of names. We we're going to call it Three Valleys which was a name Trois Valets in, fr- in France, until somebody called up and said, what's up with you guys? Sounds like a yogurt company, so we don't that. <laughs> then we were going to call it Oasis, and I was walking down Wardour Street, and I was looking up, talking to Guy on the cell phone. By then, there were cell phones. And I said, you know, Oasis is not available. He says, how do, I, how do you know? I said, because I'm looking at a sign that says Oasis Entertainment on Wardour Street. So this went on for a bit. So we, and we picked this rather boring name, Intermedia, and started this company. I thought it was terribly exciting. I drew a, a modest salary for a bit. We had $2 million of third-party investment, I thought, well, that's a lot of money. About a year and a half later, we've been through the $2 million. No no, no movies got made. Um, we, we had a couple of little diddly things that didn't quite work out, Lang Girls. And I said, do you remember a guy you said uh, that uh, you'd pay my mortgage off if things went uh, badly? And he said, yes, how much is your mortgage? <laughs> so I said, well, it's a million dollars. He said, well, why don't we try and make the company work first? And we'll see about that later. So I stopped taking That's a salary. This is 1997. And for two years, I didn't draw any salary. And I was down to my one day, I remember driving up to my house. We kept trying to find people to invest in the company. And it never worked out because um, we didn't really have anything to sell except talent and lots of ideas. And um, I remember driving to my house, which Rebecca knows well in Pacific Palisades, looking at it and thinking, I won't be living here in six months. I'll be living on one of the farmhouses that my parents have in Scotland. I hope Pat and Alex, my son, don't mind moving to Scotland because that's what we'll have to do. And I just thought, I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. I was fearless after mm-hmm. that. And things, as often happens in life, just as you hit the bottom, they turned. We it's- made a movie. Guy called me up and we'd met, we were introduced to Sidney Pollock, one of the greatest directors mm-hmm. in history, Genius. through John Patak, a dear friend who's tipped my life in a good way many way at times. We went to meet with Sidney and we, we, we made a, what's called a second look deal with him where we would make some small independent movies. And he loved doing this. And 
He called Guy up and he said, um, I've got this script. I think we can make it for two or three million dollars written by an English director. It's called Sliding Doors. It's a rather mm, unusual script. Job. So Guy says, I think we should do this. It's Sidney Pollock. I said, we're in business with Sidney Pollock. We're no longer a couple of upstart idiots carrying scripts around. We're in business with probably one of the top ten directors of all time at that point. He said, great, I'll tell him. He called Sydney. Then he came back 50 minutes later. He said, how are we going to pay for this, Nigel? Where's the $4 million coming from? So I said, well, well, didn't you just make a lot of money selling Majestic? And there was a sort of grunting at the other end of the phone. <laughs> meaning <he's not> really... <laughs> So I said, guy, we'll figure it out. Well, one thing led to another, and we got Gwyneth Paltrow in the film. And Gwyneth Paltrow uh, wasn't a big star, but she was Brad Pitt's girlfriend, which in international meant a whole lot more at that point. I never knew that. A yeah. whole lot more than being a star. Uh, we, we put the financing together. I did it. Guy managed Sydney. We... We had Gwyneth Paltrow. We made the film for $8 million. We sold the foreign rights without an, an American deal for, let's say, 9 or $10 million. And actually, the day we delivered the film, before the film came out, we had dinner with Sidney Pollock. And I realized that we owed, he'd already, his share would be $498,000. So remember calling my friend Barry Tyrman, who's a wonderful lawyer and also been a dear friend to me, and steered me through how to manage working with the Pollock family and Sidney Pollock after he passed away. And, and I said, you know, I, I, we normally the accounting statement takes about you know, nine months to be issued. But we could, um, we could I, I'm having dinner with Sidney tonight. You know, we actually have the money in the bank. I could give him a check. Uh, he said, uh, yeah, yeah, you should. I said, well, it's $498,000. Do you think 500000 sounds like a lot more? And he said, it's about a million dollars more, Nigel. So we went to dinner. And I, I said, oh, Sidney, I've got something for you. He put it in his pocket. It was in an envelope. He went to the bathroom. He came back and he said, we're ordering a $100 bottle of wine, he said, and CIA are paying because John Patak, <laughs> he realized he'd made $50,000 on his commission. So Sydney went around town telling everybody about us, that we were the bee's knees, that we were honest, and that we paid him on a film that hadn't even come out yet. The film came out. It was much heralded. It's one of those films. It was the biggest, most successful at the time English film until another movie came along. And that film today still stands the test of time. Yeah. It's a fantastic film. And it changed our lives. We made a run of great movies, Guy and I together of which I was in Los Angeles and he was in London and I gradually became more experienced. I wasn't a producer, I was an executive producer, but managing productions and seeing actually how people did things well and how they didn't do it so well, which later in life served me well. It seems to me that you understand the moment when you're in it, like that moment of taking the check in. Understanding those moments is a real special skill. I think it is. And also I think it's sort of like you have to own it. I actually liked Sydney. And I realized that he'd chosen to bless us yeah. because he, you know, he, he, he was like Spielberg. He didn't have to do this. I mean, you know, making little movies. I mean, he'd made Tootsie. It was like number one for yeah. 24 weeks. So it wasn't that I was trying to create a media, you know, a yeah. marketing moment. But I did understand that it was a moment. It was I actually Between genuinely. You. I loved Sydney and I, and I felt he deserved it. And I wanted to show him back that we cared. But you're right. I also realized I didn't realize he would go around town telling everyone at CIA and ICM and William Morris that this, these are the people to be in business with. They're totally honest because it totally changed everything. I find it such an interesting moment for you. You're 48 years old. You're very successful. That must have been scary in that moment that you look at your house and go, I'm okay with that. Were you other times in your life a risk taker? I came from a family in Scotland of evangelical Christians. We were always outsiders wherever we were. We were belonged to a, a, a Christian 
church called the Plymouth Brethren, which is a little bit like the Quakers. So my parents were always not quite in society. We were sort of middle class, like being a Mormon in Los Angeles or something. I, I went to Cambridge, which was an achievement at the time. And I went to London. I had a marriage that was broke up disastrously in very unhappy circumstances when I was 24. My wife left with one of my close friends. And that gave me a really bad feeling of survival. I had a bit of a nervous breakdown. And then somebody walked into my office about a year and a half later and said, what would you think about going to work in Dubai? And my brother, as it happened, worked in the Middle East, so I knew where Dubai was. That's a great idea, because I wanted <laughs> to get the you-know-what out of London. Uh -huh. My woman was breaking my heart. She was living down the street, although I, I have a nice relationship with her now, and she was a, a good person, and we weren't meant to be. But... Um, and I thought, it's the French Foreign Legion. I'm going, I'm going, I'm going <laughs> the to the Middle to East. Yeah. Dubai. <laughs> and I went to Dubai. And I taught myself Arabic. They forgot the firm to pay for it. Went opened this office with a local uh, Scottish lawyer that they'd found a partner. And I went and built a practice on my own in Dubai, which is the first time I actually did something myself. And I didn't see myself as, as confident. But actually, I lived in Dubai in 76 to 79. Looking back, it was a very bold thing to do. Was, I, I made more money and I would have made in London, not lots, but, you know, I traveled. I saw the world. Huge defining yeah. time in your life. Yes. So I did that. And, and, and again, it was hard scrabble. I was I let my house in London. I had a lot of good friends in London. You would go back and forth because we traveled a lot. I was now living the world where I was important to somebody. I was representing lots of banks, lending money in the petrodollar recycling to powerful Arab businessmen and rulers. So I'd always be sitting like in the amazing in sort of majlis with Sultan of Kabus from Qatar. And our job was to sign for, you know, Chemical Bank, as it was then called, to sign an opinion in under Sharia law that this was didn't violate the law. You know, right, the right, kind right. of opinions that banks have, and then they give somebody $100 million in those days, probably a billion now. So I had a taste of jet-setting around and being there. But I was always there by the leave of some circumstance. I didn't have any money. My parents were, you know, my father went bankrupt when I was 21. Sort of bad business deals and had nervous breakdowns the rest of his life. So I, I, I always was living one step away from poverty. But you're quite right. I was sort of reckless. So then I went back to London and I thought... I, I was watching the television in London at the end of 1979, thinking, what am I going to do next? In the last, I'd given my notice to leave the Middle East deal. And I was still with this firm, and the television was on, and it was the England, the winter of distress or torment, that every single person in Britain was on strike. James Callaghan was the prime minister. There was uh, you know, trash collectors, milk delivery, petrol, gas, and I saw a, an ambulance going into the Great Ormond Street Sick Children's Hospital, and these hospital workers belonging to a union called COSIG, C-O-H-S-E, and they'd link their arms to prevent the ambulance coming in. And, and they got, the back guys opened the back door and pointed to a kid and said, you've got to let this kid go in. And the workers wouldn't move. And I thought, F this for a laugh. I'm not living in this country. I'm done with this. For some reason, I went back to the Middle East and a friend said, why don't you go to university in America for a year? <clears throat> I thought, well, that sounds fun. And I ended up at Columbia Law School in, in Manhattan. So I had a fun year and I learned a lot in New York. I became very much more sophisticated as a person. And at that Christmas, I went to, with a friend to California who, who lived here, stayed with him and his girlfriend. And he was in the course with me, Elliot Hahn, nice guy. And he said, um, I remember in the, in the morning, the Russians invaded Afghanistan. I remember that. And it was shocking everybody. And... The next morning we got up and he said, what do you, hey man, get up. And I said, yeah, sure, what do you want to do today? He said, well, we can go surfing, we can go skiing, we can go sit in the jacuzzi and drink wine, we can go chase girls, or we can, uh, we can just hang out or play tennis. And I said, 
we can do all of that like now. <laughs> I said, how hard is it to live here? This is a true story. He said, yeah, yeah you're funny. And then that afternoon, we're driving down Beverly Glen, quite near here. And he said, you like it here, don't you? And I said, I love it. It reminds me of Dubai without all the local cultural problems of living here. The sun shines all the time. In fact, there was a Neil Diamond song, LA's fine, the sun shines all the time. Yeah. The people are laid back. And I thought, this is where I want to live. <laughs> yeah. He said, you should take the California bar. Remember, I was an English lawyer. I'd taken lawyer's exams in 1972. This is now 19, 1980. Christmas, 79. I said, is it, well, is, it, is, it, is it hard? He said, nah, it's easy. You'll do, you'll do it. Now, you probably know the California Bar has a success rate of 25%. It's, yeah, it's it is really the hardest hard. professional exam in the world. When I he saw that, I was like, I was more impressed by he, that. He didn't actually. <laughs> <than> the CEO. <laughs> he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't really tell me um, uh, you know, that it was difficult. So I went back to my firm and said, I got a great idea. Why don't I take this local bar exam? It's dead easy. And I could have this qualification, my London firm. They said, sure, we'll pay for it. We'll pay a few six. So there's a course called Barbary for six weeks. We can nail it. So I said, we'll pay for that. So I finished at Columbia. I graduated. I was second in my class. I came to California and I started taking these bar exams. And I, I started realizing, what the hell have I got myself into? <laughs> And I, I lost weight. I went down to like 175 pounds, and I weighed two two oh five. And and I remember running up and down every day. I'd run down San Vicente as a kind of Zen thing to make it. And I just studied and studied and studied. And I had to learn like 13 courses. Some of them I have a really good memory of by heart. And six weeks to take the American bar exams. And I didn't know anything about constitutional law or torts, oh or wills, or you know. And um and 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 uh, I had got uh, privileges to use the UCLA Law Library from Columbia Law Library. They're very nice librarians. They set me up to use the library to study. So I go up to the library every day and sit in this chair. And I was starting to get the rhythm of this. And I thought, I'm not going to pass this, but you can take it again. I'll take it again in six months' time. What I'll do is I'll get a good set of notes. I won't do Barbary. I'll, I'll bone up in England and come out and take it. And I'm going to fail. But I'm okay with that. You know, and... <laughs> And this really pretty girl so comes and sits ne next to the next table. And we're sitting. One day she looks up and I said, she, I said to her, like, because yeah, I'm English, so we're really shy. And I've been in New York where New York women are really rough. One day I held the door open for a girl going into the law library. She said, who the f do you think you are? And I, wow. And I remember the first time I went on the subway, I, I gave a guy. solidly I, women's I, libs. I gave, I went, guy gives me a token in those days. It'd be like 50 cents or a dollar or something. And I said, thank you. He said, what? And I said, thank you. He said, move on. <laughs> you know, okay, these people are different. You know, I've been in a lot of interesting cultures. You know, I've worked in Persia and I'd worked in Dubai and I'm from Scotland, you know. And anyway, so, so, so um, eventually she looks up and she says, um, I said, isn't this the worst thing you've ever done in your life? And she said, no, I've done worse things. <laughs> I said, Really? I, and she says, because she's an American girl, like in the Tom Petty song, she says, do you want to get a cup of coffee? And I said, sure. And apparently word went around all these students. This guy from Dubai, he's here, he went to Columbia for, he thinks he can take the bar, 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 bar exam and pass. Isn't that funny? And people come and say, are you the guy from Dubai? Right? Yeah, from England. And I started going for walks with Pat, my wife. I remember thinking, what am I doing walking around with her? We should be studying. And of course, she'd done three years of law school anyway. Everything worked out for you as far as being here and creating a life here it, for yourself. Yes. But what a ballsy thing to do. Well, it, it felt like I had no choice because I always felt like an outsider in my own family. My three siblings are either practicing Christians or appear to be. And my parents are very devout. Like every day you pray to Jesus, what he's going to do. And I was the bad boy, the black sheep. I wasn't really the black sheep. But I, for me, 
after my my first wife ran off with my friend, one of her religious friends wrote me a letter saying, you know, the Lord cares for us all, you know, and hope he'll care for you the next year. And I actually was so angry, I wrote back saying, if the Lord's been caring for me for the last year, I'm, tr- I'm trying the other guy for the next 12 months. <laughs> you know, and, and at that moment, I remember. So so I, I, I think there was moving on. I moved to California. We op- I persuaded my firm after a year in London to move to California, to let, to pay for me to go to California and open a branch office because I was the branch office expert from Dubai. The office was successful. Now, somewhere along the way, yeah. you have a extremely developed sense of music and musicians, and you're, you yourself are a musician. But I would like for you to talk a little bit about how you became so passionate about music and musicians and then developed, I don't know, how many films have you made, like seven or eight films that are about famous, famous, famous musicians? After this period of getting set up in California, I practiced law, as I mentioned, for 15 years. And then I left and became a producer with Guy. And then in 2000, we took Intermediate Public, floated it, and we all made some money and sort of retired. And Guy and Guy went off and played golf, and I had back surgery. And the answer to your question is how I got into music was in 2000. By 2000, one of my closest personal friends was the rock star, Roger Daltrey. He was a really close friend. And one day he'd said to me, at the end, when Intermediate had gone public, and I, I was kind of in some senses becoming redundant to the management of, of, of the business, but I was still the, one of the co-chairmen. He said, you know, you should put together a band at Christmas and I'll come up, sing and play at the Christmas party. Well, I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was on a boat in Greece on holiday and I was talking to Pat and I said, you know, I'm nuts. My One of my best friends, this famous rock star, will come and sing in a show and I, I didn't play the guitar that well then. I don't play it well now, but I really didn't then. And um, I, I should do this. So I call him up and he says, uh, you, you can, uh, I'll do this, but everybody's got to be from the office. Well, we did, we put together an office band. It was terrible. So we had to hire some ringers to cover it. But he did come out and he played with me. And then we did another show in 2003, which was much better. And that gave me an appetite for playing music. And at about that time, I got hooked up with Bob Dylan's manager, who told me that he was looking for $4 million to make... Uh, a film about Bob Dylan, defi- defining documentary. Who at that point there'd not been any, any ever been a documentary about him since 1966's Don't Look Back. I was a massive Bob Dylan fan mm. and had been since 19, probably 64 when Freewheeling Bob Dylan came out, and my mother called it devil music, which made me realise this is definitely music for me. And we had enough money because of this public float in this company, so I made a deal to put up the four million dollars, make make the documentary, and I produced it and persuaded Jeff Rosen, who also became a close mm-hmm. friend of mine, Bob's manager, that we should get a big director. And we got Martin Scorsese, mm-hmm. who was coming off the Blues Project and wanted something powerful to do. And we made the film that became No Direction Home, which I learned an awful lot. I had little to do with it creatively, although I've received a lot of glory all my life for it. But we won a Peabody Award, a DuPont Award. We won a, we were nom- I think we won an Emmy. We were nominated for an Emmy. We won a Grammy. And I thought, this is fascinating. And then... Roger called me up and said, I want you to make a No Direction Home about the Who, which is, you know, a considerable honor to be asked that. And one thing led to another, and we put together a film about the Who called The Amazing Journey, The Story of the Who, which was an ambitious project that was um, led me into that one I produced really myself, and I had to fa- change In the directors. timeline of making that, John Entwistle was still alive, right? John, John Entwistle had passed away uh, in 2002, or three, two thousand three. So he had just passed when yeah. you made that film. So he was gone. We made that film, and it was again. It got nominated for an Emmy and, and nominated for a Grammy. Didn't win, but it was acclaimed. And at that point, I started getting into making music documentaries. 
and realized that putting together um, big directors, these big subjects, you need a big storyteller and you need to create one and one equals three. You can't just go, oh, here's the Bee Gees movie with me directing it. It's got to be one and one equals three. And I went on and made quite a few documentaries. I did uh, Living in the Material World. Which was with, overwhelmingly with Olivia, fabulous. With Olivia Harrison asked me to pre- help her produce that, which was an honor. And we got Marty to do it. We uh, and, and just recently did it with Ron Howard, the Beatles film. Which was fantastic. Eight days, week, tour, eight days a week, the touring years. People started calling me up and asking me to do documentaries about so-and-so because they'd seen these big docs and they thought that that would be... You know, they'd like to do that. And I've been asked if I wanted to do Billy Joel's life story. And I wasn't a particularly not a Billy Joel fan. I wasn't not a fan. I just wasn't very aware of his music. And somebody called us. and said, we've got an idea. Shea Stadium's going to be knocked down. Now, like every Brett, including Sting, who says this in the film, we only know one thing about Shea Stadium. That is, the Beatles played mm-hmm. there. And it's an iconic moment in, in rock and roll history I'll and say. culture. <laughs> um, so I said, that sounds great. Billy Joel's going to play the last concert. So we made this film which was really, as Re- Rebecca was said, was about the history of New York and how Shea got built, its backstory, and why it matters that it's being knocked down. For the first time, I made a film about a building, not a person. It was really, really hard to create emotion because these documentaries need to be emotional. And we found a way to do it. And, and Billy's parents moved in, in very close in the shadows of Shea when, at the time, that they were, cre- they were creating suburbs in New York. So there was an interesting sort of connective tissue there, and he played the last show. And as she went, we filmed the shows and we filmed backstage all the artists that played in Billy's two concerts that were the requiem for Shay. And the very last night, um, we're told that Paul McCartney might show up. You may know this story, but his plane was coming in at 10 o'clock and there's a curfew at Shay, I think at 11. So his plane lands a little late at 10, 20. But there's a subculture in New York of more, the most powerful people in New York are the firemen and the policemen and the people, the services people. And since 9-11, they're very close-knit. So, and Macker is like a rock star hero to them because he was not only did that big show for 9-11, he also did a lot of other good things, as did a lot of British artists. He lands at 10.20. They have a police car on the runway. The BA plane is pulled over, and the passengers think there's a terrorist incident or something. <laughs> they put a ladder down. Somebody's going to get his bags. He gets in the car. The person from customs comes out and just stamps his card, probably asking for his autograph. He, they go to, out sideways out of Kennedy, wah, 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 all the way through New York. He's actually driving into our place, apparently 11 minutes from leaving the airport. And, I mean, this is... Because he tells a story and he says, I, I want to travel like this all the time. And, um, yeah, don't we and, all? And, and we managed to film him going out. I remember standing on the edge of the stage as he came out because I was right there with Steve Tyler, who happened to have played in the show. And I saw him come out. I saw him come in. I saw him pick his guitar up. Though he'd never met the band. He comes out. He runs up the stage, and of course, and he does. He says, I'm going to do I saw her standing there. He just assumes the band know it. Of course, they did. That Billy's, Billy's band is like a weapon of war, you know. He goes out. He decides to stand. And as he stood there, I just peeked out. I could see the crowd, and I felt this emotion. And I thought the whole place was going to take off. I mean, you can't imagine 65,000 people all not just screaming, but screaming with joy because Paul McCartney was there. It was the most, so I thought I'm going to start crying and it's really embarrassing. Then I look over and Steve Tyler's crying his eyes out and I thought, okay, it's okay to cry. Oh. <laughs> so, is that one of that, would you say that's definitely one of the highlights of your, yeah. is there anything that is still on your well, bucket list you know, to do? Well, you know, in jumping through my journey, I also made a film with Bob Dylan called Masked and Anonymous, which might be generously called Quite Eccentric. 
And I became actually, <laughs> I was privileged to come to know him really well because I produced a film for six weeks with him every day. And that was, that was a big highlight in my life. It was a great honor, and I still know him. And Jeff Rosen's one of my best friends, his manager. And that was a great experience, the times that I spent with him. He's about the most interesting person I've mm. met in my life by far, completely original thinker. So I formed a company called Exclusive Media with Guy. We bought Hammer Films, which is the English horror company, the aristocrat of horror. They did a lot of great horror films in the 50s and 60s. And that, we, that was another adventure. We produced some fantastic movies. We were, had ups and downs and sideways. And eventually we made a film called Rush with Ron Howard, which unfortunately didn't work in the United States. And we miscalculated the P&A spent, which um, led to a crisis with our investors. And I actually left with Guy, the company. It continued and was eventually acquired by somebody as a library play because we built up a thousand title library. On Rush, I worked with Ron Howard and Guy and I bonded with him. And one day I was sitting around with him and I, I said to him, Ron, do you like the Beatles? And he said, I love the Beatles. It's a silly question. Everybody loves the Beatles. <laughs> I said, yeah, have you ever done a documentary? And he said, no, no. I said, would you think of doing one? And he said, well, I could do I've never done one. I like doing new things. And I said, well, I can help you. I'll show you how to do it. It's easy. You know, it's like taking the California bar. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing led to another. And actually, he was doing a documentary with Jay-Z, a little bit after that, called Made in America, which is a fine live mm -hmm. performance film. Um, and, one thing, and, and Ron came on board and we made this film together, which you were kind enough to comment on. And that was a great experience. And now he and I and the same team as the Beatles are, are, are making a film about Luciano Pavarotti, the great opera singer, mm. which um, I remember sitting at dinner with Ron and I chatting about it and thinking, let's try and do something that stands alongside the Beatles. And this opportunity came up, Luciano Pavarotti, the opportunity came up and, and Ron thought it was an interesting idea because neither he or I knew much about opera. And, 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 he, and he, he's at a point he loves to do new and different things. He's just done this wonderful show, Genius, which is on mm -hmm. National Geographic, which is a, for him it's was a, a wonderful a, show. Yeah, show. which was a discovery. He told me it was a discovery. So I, it's, I'm, I'm honored to work with Ron. It's really every time you learn. And as we were finishing The Beatles, which like all these documentaries go through a phase where you have a dark night of the soul. You think this film sucks. It really doesn't work. It's boring. It's far too long. And then there's a, lots of arguments, usually the editor who's done all this work, understandably, and built this up, has become in love with the individual scenes, but the whole thing doesn't work. We spent maybe three months f cutting that film together, and he just led us through the process, and testing it and cutting it until we found the magic that, that it seemed to be. And we're working on a couple of features at the moment, one, one that's not yet announced that I'm excited about, and, um, and we're slowly getting into television. So, I mean, my current company is called White, horse pictures and i've got a small group of people working for me and i've decided i've been in big distribution companies i've been in sales companies i've been a packager of films i thought the last job i started to really get the hang of how to make films better how to make take that process with all the 200 people that might work on it and how you can steer it so it can be the best it can be because i've always felt that independent films always underperformed because they didn't have the willpower or the money in that last bit of the film to actually fix the things that are wrong including a lot of films that Guy and I worked on. And we did that very well at Exclusive. You know, we had End of Watch, which I produced with Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Peña, which I think is the best film I've ever produced. Ides of March with George Clooney, you know, mm. Woman in Black, which was a massive worldwide hit with Daniel Radcliffe. Um, and and uh, some some other movies. And Rush, which was a great film. It didn't do well here, but it did really well. It's a wonderful film. And, and I watched that process. And also in documentaries, you know, you're a bigger fish in a smaller pond. So as a producer, you have a chance to really steer them. And, and, and I felt 
you know, more confident. And I decided the last job I have, I want to just be a creator. I want to produce mm-hmm. films, television, and documentaries. What would you tell your 18-year-old self now? Well, I, do, I have two sets of answers to that. The first one is spend a little less money and save a bit more. Because <laughs> I have always had this thing that there'll always be tomorrow. I've always, I've ha- I realized, never thought, I always believed, I mean, I left exclusive media and I, I had a pretty good settlement with them and I have some, you know, good savings now. But in terms of, a, I just started another company and within three years, you know, I've, I've got quite a nice little business with, we just had a hit movie with Beatles and we're doing all these things. So, I've always assumed I can always do that, except I'm 70 now, and of course I can't be doing this when I'm 80. Or maybe I can. Maybe Mick Jagger will be, you know. So, I. But I think what the lessons I would say to people, because people do ask me, what should I do? Is number one, never give up, whatever you decide to do. Number two, don't ever think about the money. Never chase the money. Provide excellence and quality and creativity, or whatever it is in what you do, and the money will follow. If you chase the money, you'll screw it up. Try to. Always never leave any bad footprints in the snow behind you. To decide what you're going to do, you probably need to pick the right thing, but just never give up. If, you, if you're prepared to fail and believe that what you're doing was worth failing for, follow excellence in what you do. And it sounds awfully pompous, but Guy East taught me that. Everything he did is quality. He's a very good businessman, better than me, actually. But he's not as I'm more intricate and clever at entrepreneurial stuff. But Guy's got the strategic point of view. I remember we were going public and they wanted more shares. And he said, come here. He said, get the money in the bank. This is a listed company. Get the money in the bank. <laughs> you know, that's I mean, fantastic. You know, anyway, that, that, that for me, that's the payback. Thank you so much for coming. It was truly my pleasure to have you in the studio today. On the next Say It Forward, Jerry Casali is a true music pioneer whose career spans more than four decades. He's the co-founder of Devo, one of the most unique and original bands in the history of rock music. In the early 70s, Devo was creating new wave music long before other bands. Devo was at the vanguard of performance art in rock and roll, creating stage shows that combined science fiction themes, deadpan surrealist humor, and satirical social commentary. In 1980, their rise to stardom rocketed with their platinum-selling hit single, Whip It, and their video became an MTV smash. Devo has sold millions of records worldwide and toured the globe several times. Jerry is not only a singer, songwriter, record producer, and multi-instrumentalist, he's also a successful television and music video director, including spots for Diet Coke and Honda, and has directed music videos for such iconic bands as Devo, Rush, Soundgarden, and the Foo Fighters. Besides touring, making records, and putting on legendary performances, Jerry has a passion for food and wine. He has become a wine vintner and launched his own winery and boutique wine label, the 50 by 50 in Napa, California. So join us when we rewind to the beginning with Jerry Casali on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 